Assalamu alaikum everyone and welcome to the Dear Lifesaver podcast by Islamic Relief UK. Here we're tackling some big questions we have about aid in the 21st century, finding out what it takes to save a life and exploring how faith factors into all of this. The biggest question is, could you help save and transform more lives by learning something new about humanitarian aid? I'm Nabila and I'm Sara and in this episode we're talking to Alia Ahmed. With a breadth of experience in the third sector, previously as Islamic Relief UK's Global Programmes Coordinator and currently at the Guardian Foundation focusing on climate crisis-related issues, Alia is here to share her wealth of insight about the intricacies of the aid sector. She's helping us answer some simple but weighty questions we have about why the aid sector even exists, the role of big charities, the poverty origin story and its future. Salam Zalia, welcome to the podcast. Would you mind telling us a bit about who you are and what you do for our listeners? Salam, ladies. So I'm Alia Ahmed. I work in international development. I've worked in the sector for around 10 years now. So currently working for a climate change foundation. Um, I had done quite a lot of work on climate change adaptation and mitigation actually when I was at Islamic Relief, particularly working with communities in Bangladesh, um, East Africa and Sudan, but I had never worked on root causes and impacts and kind of the technical response to climate change. Um, but it was a really interesting role and a kind of opportunity to be on the other side. So I've always been in that cycle of, you know, applying for funding, implementing the project, then hustling for more funding, showing that what you've done is really good and constantly in that cycle, which I think, you know, people who work in that sector understand. And um, it's quite nice this time where, you know, I'm the grant giver. So it's just quite liberating after after many years of appealing to donors and writing proposals and bids to now be the ones in that position to say, okay, you've got an interesting project. I'm not a climate change specialist um, in any way, but it underpins so much of everything that we're working on in terms of poverty alleviation that it's it's the elephant in the room in so many ways. And the thing that, you know, anything you're doing in any sector now, if you're ignoring climate change or kind of the environmental impact of your work, you know, it's kind of missing a trick at this point. Thank you, Alia. And thank you so much for being here with us. Um, we're so excited to speak with you, especially as you have such a wealth of knowledge and experience and you're someone who has previously worked at Islamic Relief um, and been involved with directly working on the ground. Um, Alia, as someone who is Muslim, who has worked in the third sector and been on the ground, how have your experiences shaped you? It's such an interesting question and I think, you know, everybody who works in the sector probably has, you know, really kind of personal stories that they connect with and I think for me um, like a lot of people I was always very clear that I wanted to work in this sector you know some altruistic maybe slightly misguided idealist vision when I was younger that you know I wanted to go and save the world amongst my school friends we have this funny story that when we were at school and we were 15 we all had to write about what we wanted to do and I think I had written that I wanted to work for Amnesty but it was only funny because one of my friends had said she wanted to be Craig David's backup dancer. (laughs) Did she end up pursuing that dream? No, she's in corporate finance. (laughs) But, you know, I had always known that I wanted to work in this sector. And and I think one of the biggest feelings I have is just so much gratitude of being able to. Because I think once I got over, well, this is what I want to do, then it was understanding what the sector actually is. There's this idea of like what people think you do. And it's, you know, handing out water to people and what you actually do. And it's like Excel spreadsheets. But, you know, like the reality of this work is it's complex problem solving. And, you know, that's at the core of it, that's what you're doing when you're working in this sector. Um, but I think as someone who's Muslim working for Islamic Relief, I think I've I've been really overwhelmed with some of the beneficiaries I've met as part of our work, but even more so, su- super overwhelmed by our colleagues in the field. 
because I think that was one of the I felt such a great sense of pride and still do for working for Islamic Relief of kind of this this tiny organization that grew into this you know multi-tentacled um organization with with partners and with field offices and staffed by the most incredible people and I think you know I always reflect that that's it's something I'm I'm very grateful for to have worked with and met so many fantastic colleagues kind of all over the world. But you know, certainly my time at Islamic Relief was a training ground for me in this sector. It kind of taught me the nuts and bolts of what it is we actually do, how how the business of the work runs, um, and also just you know, as I said, met some fantastic colleagues who were just you know super smart and, and leaders in their field. Yeah, and I suppose that experience will have given you. Uh, an insight into the complexity of the issue that is poverty and why it exists. Um, is there a succinct answer for how and why poverty exists in the in the relatively wealthy world of today? I mean, big question. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting. I think the profile of a lot of people who get into this sector is, you know, you see things happening in other countries and you want to help. And I think probably the more you do it, the more you understand um, you know, a lot of these challenges uh, are, you know, exist much closer to home than we realise. But also, you know, the, the causes and the contexts for poverty are kind of multidimensional, very complex, hampered or caused by capitalism, depending on where your politics lie in that, hampered by climate change, certainly. As individuals, one of the things that we have now is information at our fingertips in a way that we didn't, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I think that's a good thing because it makes people, you know, more educated and more understanding as to the reasons behind, you know, why this country in particular has stayed poor, even though it has received kind of support from people for 20 years, 30 years. I don't have a succinct answer, but what I encourage um, in all my friends and colleagues who ever ask me questions about the work I do or about, you know, where's a good place to donate is, you know, critical thinking and, and kind of approaching poverty from that perspective is kind of the most helpful long term advice. Um, Alia, you've already covered elements of this question, but there seems to be a sort of constant conversation online and offline about how people give so much um, to charities year to year. But why is it that they still exist? Um, in your kind of opinion and your from your experiences and knowledge, just how effective are charities in eradicating poverty? Yeah, I mean, look, I think charities and not just because I work for one and, and this is what I do, you know, I think they're incredibly effective in eradicating poverty in providing people with opportunities in, you know, trying to tackle the things and the obstacles that hold people back from kind of achieving and from kind of living a life where of thriving, not just surviving. There is a fantastic book I read a few years ago that I was gifted by a colleague called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. I think he's a Swedish statistician. And I think with the advent of, you know, of the internet age and being able to access information at any point at any time, it's very easy to, you know, see the negatives and it's very easy to see, to assume that things are the same and nothing is getting better. But there are so many positives, um, you know, that I see that charities have contributed to in countries with weaker governments or in countries with kind of, you know, tighter regimes. NGOs and charities are the main source of kind of healthcare and education in so many scenarios. So I, I think it's absolutely fair to be critical and to want charities to be transparent. But, um, you know, I certainly think they've done a huge amount to eradicate poverty, both in, you know, in, in situations where there's a stable government. But, you know, we see in our country in the age of, you know, how many years have we been in austerity, 10 years or so now, so many of the safety nets and the support networks that came out to support people were charities, NGOs, community organisations. You know, we saw it in COVID with mutual aid organisations and that just, you know, on a micro scale 
when governments can't support citizens and can't provide kind of the basics of education and healthcare, people step in. And on a, on a macro scale, that looks like NGOs and, and kind of charities. And I think they've been hugely effective, um, you know, in, in so many areas. So, Alia, off the back of that answer, I want to go back a bit for anyone who might want an insight into what structures contribute to poverty cycles around the world and why and where aid organisations are there to step in. It's really difficult, you know, like we all know that we live in a capitalist structure and I don't think that all of us are racing to change our lifestyles and want to adopt a purely socialist way of life right now. And I think there's a lot of us who think that there is a way for capitalism to have limits and to be uh, and to be kind of lived in a more sensible, equitable, responsible way. But I think we all recognise that the kind of the acceleration of globalisation of the world has seen so many exploited and has just seen this massive widening of of inequity. And I think, you know, understanding it depends how so as we want to go, but kind of understanding structural adjustment programs of the 50s and the 60s of, you know, the huge amounts of debts and loans that were given to third income countries from the World Bank and from the IMF saddling countries into huge amounts of debt with very restrictive kind of payment plans. Those are some of the core building blocks that stopped countries that were post-colonial trying to be independent from kind of achieving those goals. And, you know, people always well, recently, especially, have been talking about Ghana as this brilliant example of a country who, you know, post-colonial were independent, were had these kind of challenging uh, loan stipulations, but have really managed to find their way out of that. And, and you know, they're no longer a low-income country. They're classed as a middle-income country in Africa. This kind of huge success story now. So it's not that those things can't happen, but I think understanding the kind of structural origins and, you know, the poverty origin story is really helpful in trying to understand as an individual you know, I keep giving to this cause, yet people remain poor, which, you know, from a really basic understanding, you know, you could very easily come to that perspective. And I do think that, you know, doing a bit of of research and understanding, okay, why is that in particular? And I think the kind of the lazy Daily Mail answer is, you know, those governments are corrupt, and they're just stealing all the money that we want to donate, which, you know, is factually inaccurate, and kind of, you know, a bit of a lazy right wing uh, response. It's not that there's not truth to those things, but um, you know that isn't the reason why countries necessarily always stay poor. But I think you know I'd probably probably do what I urged before, which is really encourage people to be critical in their understanding of situations. And and I think in a lot of ways that's why you know trust between an individual and who you're donating to is so important because. I think, you know, we all, if, you know, when there's passion, cause, passion projects or causes that we have, you know, we know who to donate and we know who to support. But if an earthquake happens on the other side of the world and we want to donate, that's where large organizations with experience, with networks, with teams, with resources are able to step in. And so I think as much as, as much as being critical and kind of trying to understand, you know, why is this particular country or this particular region kind of poor, in quotation marks still, I think it's really important to, to kind of, do a bit of research and have a look at, okay, what's happening here behind the headlines or behind the charity messaging I'm getting. And I mean, that's a whole other conversation about irresponsible charity marketing and kind of, you know, fundraising, which tries to appeal to, in some ways, the lowest common denominator of, you know, you must give food and children with flies around their heads, which, you know, I would say, I don't think people are still doing, but I do still see ads like that in the middle of the day. And so, I mean, it still exists, sadly. And one of the questions that's often asked by our audiences, especially on social platforms, is around marketing and admin. 
things like why you guys not 100% donations, why you even being paid a salary, which is of course like a whole other topic. Um, but I guess my question to you is what more can be done outside of donating money? Um, should it just end there? I think it's a really good question. And I think, you know, I'm not, you know, a, <laughs> I don't know what the words, I'm not a, not a life coach or a cult leader trying to give people life lessons but do you know i think one of the things that's really important is that we don't outsource our like moral good you know is that we don't think okay i've donated money so that's it and i think you know so many of the things that keep people in poverty both in this country and in other countries there are things that you know are avoidable there are things like having resilience as individuals as families there are things like you know building up your your risk to vulnerability Obviously, climate change is huge, you know, equitable gender relations. These are things that you in your own space, whether you're a man or a woman or whatever situation you're in, you can contribute to. And I think, you know, I'm not meaning to sound kumbaya about it, but I think it's really important because, you know, I think we've all felt very vulnerable in the last 12 plus months. And I think that should ideally have modelled, you know, the way that we want to live moving forward. You know, we've all been put in this incredibly vulnerable situation of which we, you know, we didn't even think that, you know, we we didn't think that we could feel like that. You know, maybe we look at people in other countries and think, oh, they have nothing. And for, you know, for so much of this year, we've all kind of lived on this teetering edge of, you know, losing people, whether it's people or jobs or kind of financial situations or their mental health. And I think donating is fantastic and anybody who is able to should kind of perpetuating um equitable uh, behavior and you know supporting people and, and supporting people's resilience as well as building up your own these are all things that are really important and can really kind of guide and support people and i think on a personal level i always you know i always see kind of mentoring and coaching others whether it's you know people at work or people who you're close to in your family and i felt that role you know much more in the last 12 months both as a benefactor and as someone who's provided it and i think it's a really you know i think it's a really important thing so much of what we say to women in the workplace or or kind of young girls struggling to finish school or education is you know we'll connect them with a mentor or we'll you know we'll buddy them up and i think that kind of behavior at the basic is, you know, human beings coming together, whether it's I've got a contact and, you know, I can help you with this piece of work or, you know, you know, this is a really important networking event to come through at work. And I think it's a, it's a micro example, but I think that on a much bigger scale and that kind of openness, um, kind of mutual support rather than competition is, is a really kind of is a really powerful force in the world. Um, Alia, can you tell us some of the main or biggest differences in the way bigger charities or organizations and, and smaller more grassroots charities work uh, for those who are curious to know about the different avenues of impact yeah I mean I think my my advice to people on that when they ask because often you know whether it's my parents or friends I often have people saying you know what cause should I give to you know I want to give some money to this particular earthquake you know who do you recommend and so I always say if there's a particular passion project so if people are really you know really want to support acid burn victims or they really want to support um, kind of people in a particular country then I always you know encourage them to do a bit of research find a country or you know have a look at Kiva or find someone or, that represents kind of your interests and support them because I think that kind of that kind of strategic support is really important but you know often there are situations where it is really difficult to find those you know to find those uh those methods for donating and i think that's where large organizations just have an incredible uh you know an incredible scope that smaller charities can't you know can't necessarily compete with i remember working um, with islamic relief in kenya and traveling in kind of the northeastern regions 
And sometimes the team were traveling for five, seven hours delivering Ramadan packages. And I really thought like, wow, like to, to do this kind of work, you need to have a network, you need to have the resources, the skills, the understanding. Um, you know, it's something beyond getting on a plane and, and raising 10,000 pounds and kind of donating it. And I applaud people for, for those kinds of efforts as well. But I think there's a real difference between doing a good thing and doing something that creates impact. And I think they're, you know, slightly different things, you know, from a really small example, it's a good thing to give a homeless person 10 pounds. It's a very different thing to, you know, support a charity with a larger amount that's supporting people with kind of longer term housing needs and, and you know, looking at mental health challenges or all the underlying issues that lead to that problem. So I think, I think both can can work really well. Um, and, I, and I think both have their place, definitely. And I, when I left Islamic Relief, I went to work at a much smaller, well, a tiny five person global health organization. And I saw the kind of work that you could do with, you know, 10,000, 5,000, 3,000 pounds of very, very targeted work with exactly the right people. But that work also requires huge amounts of resource, whether it's, you know, most of that really was human resource. And that work requires people to, um, you know, there's still a cost for that work, essentially. It's just a lot of the time unpaid labor. Um, I worked at a, an organization that supported anesthetists in low-income countries, um, well, in, in lots of different countries, but in particular, we supported new cities in low-income countries, and we had a program where we supported training. And I remember we had um, an anesthetist, so a doctor based in Burkina Faso, who had been awarded a fellowship to go and train in Ghana. And for this fellowship, they all, you know, everybody who awarded it got paid a stipend of, I think this one was three thousand pounds, to support him while he was in Ghana for for kind of six months. Um, and he'd asked if he could travel overland instead of taking a flight and the flight would, would have come out of that stipend. And I said, OK, sure. That was, you know, of three countries and taking buses. And then he'd asked if he could, you know, he'd ask something else. Or, you know, can I can I live in a different place and, and it be cheaper? And I said, OK, well, look, I'm open to it. And he eventually said, look, well, the hospital that I'm working in in Burkina Faso doesn't have an ultrasound machine. and I want to take my stipend and use it to buy a secondhand ultrasound machine. And, you know, just this incredibly self-sacrificing act this you know this doctor who's not getting paid a salary to go and do this training in Ghana taking this tiny amount of money so I think you know with smaller charities it is incredible the amount of work that they can do often it results in you know real champions and individuals who are creating kind of incredible change and that's Burkina Faso in a country that has I think you know less than 10 um, anesthetists um, so when I first started my role at Islamic Relief, um, I remember going through the social media calendar and looking at the notable days and anniversaries. Um, and one of the days that actually stuck out to me was World Toilet Day. Um, and I remember kind of thinking to myself, like having no idea what it was about. Um, and then I looked into it and realised its significance Um and but until then, I had never thought about the importance of latrines, toilets, and wash facilities in general, um, especially in places like camps for internally displaced people and refugees, where there are sometimes hundreds or thousands of um, people having to share one toilet. Um, it's almost Im impossible to comprehend, um, and that doesn't even kind of you know, I haven't even covered anything to do with women uh, using these facilities and you know, it, it kind of goes back to what we were speaking about in terms of period poverty um, as well. This is just, you know, to do with the fact that there's one toilet being shared amongst thousands of people. Um, I wanted to ask you, what, what, what can we do alongside others um, to make a real difference? 
I think one of the biggest things my experience has taught me is it's really kind of burnt to the ground any myths or any ideas that you have that people are so different. Mm-hmm. You know, I think before, maybe when I was first traveling, I definitely think I'm quite a confident person, but I was, you know, I held back in the field. I was unsure about, you know, I wanted to be respectful both to colleagues and to beneficiaries and maybe was unsure and, and about kind of maybe how to connect. And I think the more experience I had and the more I kind of worked with other colleagues and kind of observed you know, you've just realised, you know, the universality of humanity. And, you know, I have been inspired by so many of the colleagues I've worked with and so many of the people that I've worked with. And I think that's definitely given me, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a check in my ego. I think any time you think you're, you know, you're, you know, any time that starts to get a bit big, you, you know, you meet someone amazing doing something incredible and you kind of check yourself a little bit. But I think, yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit preachy, but I think overall, I just feel incredibly blessed to be uh, to have the opportunity to work in this sector. And I think going back to the point you made about kind of how complex some of these things, are, I think, you know, we have to move past the idea that charity is giving food packs to people, which is a really important part of our work and a really important part of, you know, work. But it's it's one very small visual aspect of the work. And if we just look at our own lives and if we just, you know, look at ourselves as individuals, anything that we want to achieve, you know, if you look at what's holding us back, we'll be able to say, oh, there's all these five different reasons why I can't achieve this. The course is too expensive or I don't have time or this person, you know, won't let me or I've got kids or, you know, I'm not feeling that well right now. If you just kind of consider that for any other person who might be living in in another country, in another situation, in poverty, in quotation marks, it's the same challenge, you know, when you're thinking, you know, all they need is money or all they need is to be able to go to school. And it's really important to kind of build schools if that is a cause you support or give food. But there's so much more to that. The world is complex. The world that we live in is complex. The world that others live in is in complex. Is complex. And I think it's really important to keep remembering that. And unfortunately, um, I think there's some really universal themes when you're when you're kind of investigating this area and this sector, for sure. But I think the more you look into it, the more that you kind of uncover. And I think that's only a positive because more information is, you know, only helps better inform individuals. So although it can feel a bit exhausting sometimes and and maybe a bit overwhelming, I think overall it helps people, especially people who want to do more than just give money. It helps people and kind of arms them with information and kind of guidance on, okay, I I looked this up and actually there's, there's, you know, there's a scholarship fund that's supporting people in this particular area to do this particular course. And, you know, I want to continue to support them. And I think I've seen some of the, you know, just looking at philanthropists, which again is also a whole other topic of how much power they now have. But, you know, that has come out of someone's interest of wanting to understand a problem further, you know, whether it's climate change or malaria or kind of vaccine uptake, these big philanthropists have come out with, okay, well, I've had this very successful company. This is a problem. Let's look into this a little bit further. And so I think, you know, exploring an idea that you're exploring an idea, an issue or a topic that you have questions about is always a really positive thing, whether you're, you know, whether you want to work in the sector or you want to donate or you just want to learn more. I only encourage people to do that more. I I feel like in light of some of the complexities um, we've covered in just this short conversation between us around why poverty exists and how it affects people, it feels difficult to ask if there are simple solutions to some of these poverty related issues. Um, Would you able to expand on this? And um, is there a good place to start looking for ways to create sustainable change? Um, The internet with its quagmire of opinions and uh, messy (laughs) 
you know, messy uh, web. Um, but I mean, yeah, I would say ideally, if you know people who are in that sector, whether they be academics, whether they people, whether they be people living in that country, there's always really useful resources. You know, I always encourage people if you know people who are in need in a particular country, it's always, you know, it's always a good idea to to donate or at least to gather information. I think, you know, with what's happening in Palestine, one of the things that's been so powerful is people who have people on the ground right then and there, kind of real-time information. So I think, you know, your own networks, other people's networks, you know, the world is incredibly small. Um, and I think, you, you know, most people would be able to find a, whether if it, you know, we might not be somebody who's directly in that space, but somebody who might know someone else. So I think, you know, I'd encourage people to obviously to read, you know, as widely as they can on the topic, but also to reach out to other organisations. You know, often there are charities who, especially, you know, now communication is a lot easier, who might be able to provide, you know, more personalised or kind of more direct information um, on particular projects or on particular kind of areas of need. Um, but Sarah, on this simple solutions question, you were right and and, and respectfully, very nicely, didn't ask it because I, I have kind of talked a lot about how complex and multidimensional poverty is. But I also think there are some really simple solutions in the sense of I can't give you a list of 10 solutions, but there are some really um you know, time and time again in this sector, people have come up with simple solutions that really help. So I remember working on a project with Islamic Relief a few years ago, and um, it was about single sex latrines in schools, which was a tiny part of a huge project. But it was one of those linchpins that we like to talk about because it was one of the biggest things that will stop girls continuing education after they start their periods because there is no way for them to go to the toilet or they might not have access to sanitary materials. And it was one of these big things that's like, why do we see this huge drop in girls going school after you know 11 to 13 well because this major life change happens to them there isn't the space for them, that to be accommodated so as much as you know complex poverty is complex there are also these really small often low-cost solutions that can kind of really provide you know strategic injection of cash um, or kind of strategic marketing around a particular area can, can really help and I think things like you know supporting girls when they're menstruating and, and supporting their education is one of those things. Alia, going back to your experiences with working in the third sector, how was your experience working specifically for a faith-led organisation such as Islamic Relief? And for you personally, how does religion affect your stance on poverty? Um, on the first part of the question, um, so for me, I I mean, I saw Islamic Relief as a kind of stellar humanitarian organisation. That was kind of the first, kind of my first understanding of it and, and what attracted me to it. But as a faith-based organization, I think it straddles just this really unique place in the Venn diagram. And um, when I was working in Kenya, um, there were at that time pre-Syria, um, Dadaab refugee camp, uh, it's kind of on the border of Somalia and Kenya, was the biggest refugee camp in the world. And um, we had been bidding for you know contracts to run some of the camps. It was split into five smaller camps. And um UNHCR did a did a kind of uh, a project polling people in the refugee camp and their responses to different organizations and I think Islamic Relief scored something like a 90 percent um uh, percentage a 90 percent score in kind of uh, recognition and understanding from people in the camps and that was because they had seen the work that Islamic Relief had done in Somalia and they resonated with the minaret and they liked the logo and that's when I really started to understand that we occupy such a unique space in this environment. We're able to have conversations, whether it's about 
FGM or gender-based violence or kind of conversations that might be difficult in conservative Muslim environments. We're able to have those conversations and, and have this unique space that maybe other organizations don't have. And I think that is so powerful as a faith-based organization. You know, I think it's, you know, there's some, our religion has, has kind of uh, poverty alleviation built into the fabric of it in Zakat, in how we support communities and how you support your neighbours and how you think about others as your own. And I think, you know, I really started to understand how connected we were, you know, after that experience. Um, and I think look, any person of faith, I think they can tell you that, you know, having faith is, you know, is such a huge part of, of you know, providing salve in challenging times. And I, you know, I've felt that so often when I've seen, when I've seen things that have felt so unfair. And so, you know, I, you know, this is such an awful situation. And why did this happen? I remember seeing, you know, some really challenging things when I was in Somalia and seeing, you know, some really senseless violence. And you kind of look at it and you think, okay, what's going on here? Like, this is so, you know, this is so unfair and it's so unjust. And it's, you know, faith, only faith can kind of get you through those situations of like, beyond human understanding why do some of these things happen and that's really I think a part of where you know my faith and kind of my connection to to God really helps me because there are some things that we you know you can have a an academic um, answer you know it's this kind of behavior and people grow up in these environments and you know it's a it's a resource grab or but you know uh, you you feel a certain kind of way about it and I can't in, always intellectualize everything and I think having faith really helps in those in those moments when you think when you feel a little bit hopeless. So I think, yeah, in a really personal way, that has, that's kind of guided me and, and kind of given me hope in sometimes hopeless situations. Alia, the last question we have for you is, um, if you could amplify one thing about the current system in the third sector, what would it be and what would you change? Well, that's such a good question. That should be an interview question, uh, <laughs> a job interview. <laughs> um, oh, it's a brilliant question. So amplify one thing about the current system. Um I think I, I mean, this is kind of a kind of a weird one, but I'd want to amplify all the fantastic uh, kind of hidden people that work in the sector. I think there's lots of people that get awards and there are lots of people that kind of sometimes cultivate um, a bit of a celebrity. And honestly, those people are very necessary. They're necessary for organizations strategically, for fundraising, for, you know, for, for kind of having a, a presence. But there's so many people that are kind of quietly squirreling away, just like whether it's coming up with a, you know, a really innovative new program or a new approach to, you know, to, to, to an older way of doing something or, you know, people who are kind of quietly sitting in really far off field offices that take eight hours to get to, you know, those people are so integral to, to actually getting the work of, you know, supporting communities with the money that people donate every day and so I suppose you know amplifying the presence of those people and, and kind of how complex the, the the web and the network is I'd love to kind of celebrate some of those individuals um, and what I would change I mean I suppose this kind of movement that's happening now of, of decolonizing aid and this you know this hold that so many high-income countries still have which you know it's you know it's so fantastic to that so many of these high-income countries, the US, the UK, other, you know, Western Europe are so supportive and so generous. But there's sometimes a misunderstanding that it's only people in our countries or in the West that are generous and that are supporting, you know, there's a world giving index and Kenya came 11th in that world giving index. It's a country that people might think, oh, it's poor, I'm donating to it. You know, often how we donate is a bit skewed. It's not always measured in 
the most accurate way, but, you know, Kenyan citizens are sending remittances home to their family. You know, Kenyans working in different parts of the world are often supporting, you know, people back in their country. And all of that is charity. All of that is supporting kind of communities of people often. So I think, you know, it's really important more and more to start to decolonize how we think about aid and how we think about who has power and who's helping who. And I think any of those movements that creates a more equitable balance between the people that we're helping and kind of us sitting in our head offices, you know, working for large organizations, anything that starts to balance out a little bit more, I think is only a positive thing. And I, you know, I hope that that starts, the change has been happening for a while, but I think in the last year, any of these kinds of movements hopefully will will benefit from that acceleration of kind of a bit of a power shift. And I think that will be a really exciting change in the sector in the next kind of five, 10 years. Yeah, that's something certainly very promising. And I feel just even from this conversation, despite all of the difficulties that we've had to touch on, um, I for one feel very nourished by a new level of understanding. And I'm sure there will have been very many people who have also benefited from uh, the knowledge um, and insights that you've had to share Um, who maybe didn't even know how to access it. So really, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You know, and I think, you know, 15 years ago or, you know, 10 years ago, if I'd have had the opportunity to, to ask questions and to kind of understand, you know, what was what's behind the work. Yeah, I would have really appreciated kind of and I would have really appreciated that perspective. So, you know, I only want to thank you for the opportunity to kind of to, to, to answer these questions and to kind of share a bit of my perspective. Thank you to Alia for joining us for that conversation. Um, In this segment, Nabila and I like to get back together and discuss some of the things that resonated with us most and maybe some of the lessons that we've implemented in our daily lives. Um, Nabila, what did you take away from that conversation? Yeah, I really loved that conversation. I think that um, it was really needed and it's just so incredible the amount of kind of knowledge and experiences that Alia has um, within the sector. It's stuff that's not really that accessible as well either. Like when, when you're first starting out and... Uh, one of the things that she said was when you're young you have this kind of like idealistic altruistic kind of idea of your role in the world or or how to make Mm -hmm. a difference and uh, the thing that always occurs to me is that that accessible to people who want to pursue a career in the third sector but equally it's it it lends itself to a lot of misconceptions as well and I think that's why this episode is really useful for me yeah I love the stories that she had to tell as well um especially the one about the doctor who had saved his stipend to buy a secondhand ultrasound scanner for um, the hospital he was working in. And I think sometimes when you donate to charity, you don't, um, it's, that's kind of it and you feel good mm-hmm. about yourself and you don't sort of zoom in and think about these really specific machines or tools that are needed just for someone to be able to survive. Um, or like that same example, have a simple ultrasound scanner to check your baby's health we're we're so privileged here to be able to have the resources and tools that we have and I think often we just get so disconnected from the rest of the world and how scarce these resources are yeah it's conversations like this about the aid sector and what what purpose it serves from like a macro lens and then also these very important anecdotes on the ground as well that kind of give you this really complex understanding of what the aid sector in its entirety actually is and I think every episode that we've had up until this point has really situated this conversation for me because even like with regards to the overarching question of like why poverty still exists that we asked Alia because it has shed light on all these very 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 many causes of the perpetuation of poverty not just um 
in domestic cases but internationally as well and like what that requires of of organizations and systems that wish to share the abundance that we have here in in parts of the world with with um with those who who need it to create sustainable change for me this is just part of the journey of understanding why the aid sector exists and how many mashallah bases are being covered um even what the holes might be but also just just how that journey will improve so if anything resonated with you from this episode or inspired you or you have any questions you'd like us to cover in an episode why not get in touch with us you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at islamic relief uk and for future episodes make sure you guys subscribe to the dear lifesaver podcast on acast spotify apple and all major streaming services thank you again to alia for joining us for this episode and to you of course our listeners um we'll see you next time inshallah assalamualaikum, assalamualaikum.